The reading this evening is Revelation chapters 10 and 11. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, There will be no more delay, but in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more, Go, Take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the, land, on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hands and ate it. It tasted sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. I was given a reed, like a measuring rod, and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshippers, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months, and I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for a 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they're prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some people from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud 
while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders, who were seated on their thrones before God, fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant, and there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a severe hailstorm. This is God's word. Well, you barely need a sermon. I mean, it's so obvious what all that's about. (laughs) It is another glorious, glorious passage from Revelation. I've had a fantastic time this week um, just living in Revelation 10 and 11. But it has uh, challenging but glorious truths from God. So let's pray for his help. Our Father God, we thank you for the rich, uh, the mind-boggling, the glorious words of Revelation We thank you for the way these pictures move us and stir our imaginations. Help us, we pray, through Revelation, to think bigger thoughts of you, thoughts that are closer to the truth. And help us tonight, we pray, would you breathe into us the power to witness for you and the willingness to suffer for you for the sake of the one who suffered and now reigns in glory. Amen. Look, uh, Revelation 9 finished with what I think must be some of the most discouraging words in the Bible. Uh, If you uh, flick back to the last couple of verses of Revelation 9, you've got the terrifying, earth-shattering judgments of God have poured out on the inhabitants of the earth. And we respond, eh, with a shrug and just get on with life. You think, well... (laughs) What hope is there for humanity if the trumpet blasts of divine earthquakes and demonic affliction just don't even rouse us from our slumber? It's a reality, I guess, those of us who'd call ourselves Christians see every day. We see friends and colleagues terrified of coronavirus and really concerned about uh, the climate emergency, but does it soften them to thinking about Jesus? Most no. Too busy getting on with life utterly indifferent to the gospel that alone could bring hope, hardened, it seems, to the beautiful grace and love of God. Now, some Christians respond to this reality that, look, we, you know, we try to tell people about Jesus and most of them just not interested. And some respond with just a kind of bunker mentality. So um, I was brought up in a brethren church and some of the more strict brethren churches, especially in the middle of the last century, when they built new church buildings, they would build them with no windows in the walls, but windows in the roofs. They could see the return of Christ as he came down 
but they had no interest in seeing out into society because, well, society had rejected the church and they were afraid. And so they just sort of bunkered down waiting for Jesus. I guess for most of us in this room, we face the opposite danger. Now, perhaps we're more likely to respond to the same reality that we speak about Jesus. We invite friends and they just don't care at very best. We're probably more likely to just respond by becoming chameleons. That is, we just, we stop living distinctively. We stop speaking and we just act and hope and live like everybody else once we get out of these doors. Effectively, we give up. We've got no confidence that people will be converted because we've had so many knockbacks. It seems that nothing happens when we share the gospel. And so, effectively, we give up. And we stop living distinctively as Christians even. And it is very, very easy to look out at a world which by and large is at its best indifferent and at its worst rather hostile to the gospel and to lose hope. But Revelation 9 is not the end of the story. Now, do you remember, uh, between the sixth and the seventh seal, there was a pause. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 1, if you look at it, chapter 8, verse 1 says, there's silence in heaven for half an hour in that pause. There's also a pause between the sixth trumpet in chapter 9, verse 13, and then the seventh trumpet at the end of our passage tonight in chapter 11, verse 15. But this time, the, silent, the, the pause isn't filled with silence. It's filled with speech, with testimony, with prophecy, with evangelism, speech about the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we'll see is that there is hope for our world. And that hope comes through the speaking, suffering church. The speaking, suffering church. As the church, that's you and me. As we speak about Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, and slightly less comfortably, as we suffer for Jesus, for his glory, following his path. Well, as we do that, people really are roused from their spiritual slumber. And people really do turn and put their trust in Jesus Christ. Okay, so uh, Revelation 4 to 11 as we've been working through, we've seen it. It's, it's a peek behind the curtains, an invitation to see the world from God's perspective rather than just what can be seen with human eyes, the spiritual realities behind what can be seen. And as we'll see, Revelation 10 to 11, what it basically shows, this is Matthew 28, 18 to 20 in 3D. Now, many of us uh, will know the last words Jesus spoke on earth were this commission recorded right at the end of Matthew's gospel. Matthew 28, Verse 18, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That's what Jesus says. And now we see what does that look like if you describe people going out and doing that in the language of Revelation, the 3D picture language of Revelation. We get this stunning vision at the start of the authority of the Lord Jesus, and then we get a sobering description of the reality of what it looks like when his people actually go out and start sharing the gospel. And what we see is that the church very often looks defeated and hopeless. It often looks dead, even as it offers life to the world. 
And so look, if, there, if you've ever felt the church just seems too pathetic, or you've ever feared that you are just too unimpressive to convince anybody to actually put their trust in Jesus, or if you ever worry that, look, people just reject it when I speak about Jesus. Maybe I'm just, I'm not gifted as an evangelist. Maybe I'm better off, you know, just living a good Christian life and keeping my mouth shut. Maybe I should just keep quiet. If you've ever felt any of those things, as I often have, then the words of Revelation 10 to 11, well, they are life and they are hope. And they're a wake-up call for all of us. And I hope they will be for you tonight. Uh, you've got the points on your sheet. Uh, firstly, the sovereign Lord rules, rules over all and calls us to share the bittersweet gospel. It begins with a vision of the sovereign authority of Jesus Christ. Chapter 10, verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun, and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. Now, we're then told, and when, the seven, uh, and when he shouted, the voice of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. So what was the message of the seven thunders? Well, where God's word is silent, humans are always happy to fill in the blank. But we're not going to do that tonight. We don't know. God has not told us. He's told us a whole lot of other things. We'll focus on those. Now, have you heard of the phrase, the power stance? You know, I remember, do you remember George Osborne a few years back at the Tory party conference and striding onto the stage like Flash from Blackadder, a cultural reference the, um, for some. Um, it's as high culture as I get, I'm afraid. But uh, he sort of stood there like this. Apparently, it makes you look impressive. Here's this angel's got one foot on the land mass of the earth and the other foot on the sea. Okay, that's a power stance. And that is what's going on, basically. It's saying, I own all of this. I rule it. Who is this angel who has authority over the, the land and the sea, the whole earth? Well, the Lord Jesus is never called an angel in the whole of the book of Revelation. But there is something of Jesus about him. He's robed in a cloud. He's got a face like the sun, legs like fiery pillars, and a voice like a lion's roar. It's just like the vision of Jesus from chapter 1. And he holds a scroll like Jesus did in chapter 5, and it's open. So I think it's best taken, he's an angelic representative of the Lord Jesus. So Jesus has given his authority to this angel to come down to earth. And this angelic representative of the Lord Jesus declares, verses 5 to 7, there's going to be no more delay, God's plans will be fulfilled. And then in this strange scene, he commissions John for the fulfillment of God's plans. Verse 8, Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me once more, Go take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, Take it, eat it. It'll turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it'll be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I'd eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Okay, what on earth is going on? 
Uh, look, if you come back through Gatwick Airport before coronavirus shuts down the world, um, you'll see as you as you sort of head down into the uh, towards the baggage reclaim area when you're doing your speed walk back with your weekend bag. The what you'll see is this picture of the it's a picture of the Queen, but it's made up of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of tiny little pictures of other people, maybe some of you, for all we know. It's pictures of a whole heap of other people. And those pictures together form a great big picture of the queen. And Revelation is basically like that. John is using picture language. He's painting a picture for us of God's rule of the world and God's work of bringing salvation to completion. And his picture is made up of hundreds and hundreds of other little pictures, basically taken from the Old Testament. It's just like this. And the bit here with the bittersweet scroll, it's it's a little picture taken from the book of Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapters 2, 9 to 3, 15, Ezekiel is commissioned as God's prophet, just as John is here. And he's given a little scroll to eat, and he's told it will taste sweet, and he eats it, and it's sweet. But when he goes and proclaims God's word, which is a, a warning of judgment, a call to repentance, he talks of the bitterness of his spirit as people reject God's warning. And that's what's happening here. The open scroll is the gospel. We're told later in Revelation, the spirit of prophecy is the testimony about Jesus. It's a mystery, verse 7, and and throughout the New Testament, mystery refers to God's salvation that would come through Jesus Christ. It had to be revealed by God. We couldn't work it out. So Ephesians 3 and Colossians 1 and 2, they're full of references to mystery being what God would do through the Lord Jesus Christ to fulfill his promises. Now that Jesus has come, this scroll is open. That's why the word... uh, for announced in verse 7, it's, it's the evangelized word, euangelion, just as he gospeled to his servants, the prophets. Okay, so what's going on here is John is being commissioned again to preach the gospel of Jesus. He's being told, preach the gospel of Jesus, and it's really sweet in your mouth, but it's going to turn your stomach bitter. And I think those of us who know Jesus, we might think, what on earth is this saying? But actually, we do know that experience, don't we? The sweetness when you first digested the gospel. Can you remember when you first realized, I'm completely forgiven in spite of everything I've done and worse still, everything I'm still going to do, that I'm, I'm loved by God and adopted as his child, not because of how wonderful I am, but because he's just so unbelievably loving. Can you remember what it was like when you realized, look, I never earned God's favor, his justification, his acceptance, with my wonderful good behavior, and so I can't lose it with my idiotic, sinful misbehavior. The gospel is so sweet when you first understand those rich truths. Nothing in the world, nothing in the world is as sweet as when you first come to understand what Jesus has done for you. But that same gospel also brings a measure of bitterness as you share this amazing good news, you've discovered, look, uh, Jesus loves everybody. He died even for you. you. You can be forgiven. And you find people mock you, accuse you of being a bigot, reject you, friends ghost you. How bitter it is when people reject the message of Jesus Christ. When you know the riches they're passing up and when you know the judgment that is coming for those who reject him. 
the sovereign Lord rules over all and calls us to share the bittersweet gospel. Us, since John, we'll get there. Chapter 10. Chapter 11. The church speaks with power, suffers like Jesus, and triumphs eternally. This is the heart of what we're going to see. So chapter 11, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshippers, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it. It has been given over to the Gentiles. Again, John's 3D picture is made up of lots of little pictures, and this particular little picture comes from uh, the other end of Ezekiel. As Ezekiel has his vision at the end of Ezekiel, chapters 40 to 48, his vision of the new creation, the new temple. Uh, The worshippers in the temple, they're God's people. The Gentiles, that's a figurative way of speaking about those who don't believe in Jesus. So this bit is basically saying God's people are in the world, but measured off by God, eternally secure, although surrounded by those who reject God. So he's saying that the church is like a bus in a safari park. Surrounded by wild animals, but very safe inside. Now, John was commissioned uh, by Jesus to speak about Jesus in chapter 10. But in chapter 11, we're introduced to two other witnesses. Uh, Look with me at verse 3. And I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. Who are these witnesses? All manner of weird theories. Um, Some people have said Peter and Paul when they were in prison in Rome. Others, it's the Eastern and the Western churches. Um, Quite a lot of people in London in the 17th century thought they were two tailors named John Reeve and Lodovic Muggleton. Uh, There you go. Well, John tells us who they are. You see, they are, verses 3 to 4, the two olive trees and lampstands, which clears up everything for us. Actually, it does. It does. And you wouldn't laugh if you remember chapters 1 to 3 of Revelation and if we were really familiar with our minor prophets, as all of us are, I'm sure. They're back in not weird prophets like John Muggleton, I mean Old Testament prophets. So back in 120, right at the, uh, the first chapter we looked at in Revelation last year, Jesus explained to John the lampstands of the vision he saw were the churches. We, the church, are the lampstands. He's talking about us. We're the witnesses. God's people throughout the ages. But why the introduction of olive trees? What's that got to do with anything? Well, it would be obvious to a first century audience, because olive um, olive oil wasn't just used for, for flashy salads. Olive oil was used as fuel for lamps. And so when you get a lampstand with an olive tree next to it, it's basically saying a perpetual fuel supply for your, for your lamp. And you'll notice if you look at the, <coughs> at the footnote at the bottom of the page, it shows that in verse 4, John is quoting from Zechariah chapter 4, the penultimate book of the Old Testament. And back in the book of Zechariah, the prophet had a vision of a lamp with two olive trees. And when he asked, what on earth does this mean, God? God said to him, Zechariah 4, 6, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Okay, what, right, where have we got to? John's vision in Revelation 11, 1 to 6 means this, the people of God 
are empowered by the Spirit of God to witness to the truth about Jesus. The people of God are empowered by the Spirit of God to witness about Jesus. You may feel weak, inadequate, and awkward as you try to speak about Jesus with friends and colleagues. The reason you feel like that is because most of us are quite weak, inadequate, and frequently awkward. That's why you feel like that. But God is none of those things. And it is by his Spirit's power, rather than my human weakness, that each of us speaks about Jesus. That's the thing that makes the difference when we speak about Christ. We are lampstands with a perpetual power supply, not from a a literal olive tree, but from the Holy Spirit of the living God dwelling in each of us. That's also what the shocking image of verses 5 to 6 is actually all about. Um, As he talks about the two witnesses, If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so it will not rain during the time they're prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now, the two great figures of the Old Testament were Moses representing the law, if you like, and Elijah representing the prophets. They're the two who appear with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And the language used here is, it should ring alarm bells for us. Oh, yeah, there's something kind of Moses and Elijah-ish about this. Uh, Elijah, who 1 Kings 17, 1, shut up the heavens and stopped the rain for three years. Moses, who shuffled out of the desert as an 80-year-old and humbled mighty Egypt by bringing God's plagues upon them. And so when you put it all together, verses 1 to 6, paint for us a picture of the people of God, living by the power of the Spirit and daily bearing witness to the Lord Jesus. And he says, look, that power that works in you, it's kind of like the same power that meant when Elijah spoke a word, it stopped raining for three years. I mean, we'd be happy with three minutes right now in this country, but three years he stopped it raining. That was a serious drought. The same power that enabled this old shepherd, Moses, to break the greatest superpower in the world as he spoke words and God's plagues rained down on Egypt. So that power is at work through you, the church, us ordinary people, as we speak about Jesus. The people of God will speak of Jesus by the power of the Spirit. Okay, next part of the puzzle. What are the 42 months in verse 2? Mathematicians here, yes, you've already worked out it's the same period as 1,260 days in verse 3. And there are lots of theories. Um, I had to read through all of them this week. The New Testament um, uses all sorts of numbers that are picked up from the Old Testament. And I think that the most sensible theory is simply this. Back in Numbers, uh, verse chapter 33 in the Old Testament, it lists the Israelites' journey through the wilderness to the promised land. Now, the New Testament again and again says that that journey through the wilderness to the promised land is a picture of the Christian life. As we, the church, those who follow Jesus, we put our trust in Jesus and we journey through the wilderness of this world to the promised land of God's new creation. How many camps do you think there were in the wilderness wanderings of the children of Israel as they went through the desert to the promised land. 42. I think that's what he's saying. 
I think he's saying, look, as we journey to God's eternal paradise, for every day, for every moment of our travel, the Spirit will be empowering us to keep bearing witness, to keep serving Christ, to keep honoring him all the way home. There'll never be a day of the journey when the Holy Spirit is not with you, empowering you to serve and honor him. Now, this picture of of the church with great prophetic power speaking of Jesus, it changes rather dramatically in verse 7. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower them and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, which is also where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets have tormented those who live on the earth. The church is now attacked by the beast who came out of the abyss. We saw in, uh, in chapters 8 to 9 that was the devil. And we're told explicitly the attack happens in Sodom, Egypt, and in Jerusalem. Can't be all those places literally at the same time. It's, it's saying they represent the world, the whole world in its opposition to God. The three and a half days, I, I think that reminds us that God remains sovereign. And the time of opposition is strictly limited. Verse 11, after three and a half days. External persecution and internal compromise frequently in church history have left the church apparently defeated, powerless, and dead. Now, it's pretty unsettling as a Christian to read this, perhaps even frightening, and realize part of God's plan for his people, his glorious, triumphant plan, is for his church to be defeated by evil powers, utterly humiliated, and left to rot in the street. But it shouldn't surprise us. We follow the Lamb who was slain, the Savior who triumphed by being crucified. But of course, the story doesn't end there for us, just as it didn't end there for him. Verse 11, but after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. They went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The Holy Spirit breathes fresh life and power into God's people and brings them safely home. One minute, the people of the world are gloating over the death of the church. The next minute, they're on their knees glorifying God. Do you see the massive difference between chapters 9 and 11? In chapter 9, there were terrible natural disasters, but no one repented. No one took any notice. Here, another natural disaster, and this time, this time people repent. They turn to God and give him glory. The difference is this time, this time they've heard the speech and seen the suffering of the church. It is the gospel that is the power of salvation. The gospel preached by seemingly weak, suffering people. 
Now, I don't think that the events recorded here are um, things that take place one after another at the very end of time. There might be a particularly intense version of this just before Jesus returns. But I don't think it's the church at the end of time so much as the church at all times. It is always both defeated and unstoppable. It's always the history of the church. It always appears both defeated and triumphant. The history of the church is unstoppable advance and perpetual opposition. The church always appears to be lying dead in the street in some places and growing just irresistibly in other places. Uh, One of the the best commentaries on Revelation written in the last hundred years was written by a guy called William Hendrickson in the middle of the last century. And in it, as he's writing um, just after the Second World War, he laments that while the church in the West is is doing all right, the church in China is, as he puts it, as good as dead. And as he looks out, he sees very little reason for hope as communism spreads all around Asia. 70 years on? Well, the church in Western Europe is the bit that appears to be dead on its feet. And the wider culture is certainly gloating about that. But in China, where there are far more Christians now, probably double the number of Christians that there are members of the Communist Party. In Iran, of all places, the church is growing like wildfire. The church is always advancing unstoppably and suffering in the face of perpetual opposition. It's just always both will be true. And so often the church grows most where it suffers worst. Tertullian in the fourth century observed the blood of martyrs as the seed of the church. More prosaically, I guess many of us will know in our own lives. Isn't it often the case that when you've been most struck down, you've been most useful to God? I think of university friends I'd tried to share the gospel with for year after year after year. The thing that got them to church and to come along to Christianity Explored is when my life was at its lowest ebb. And my brother had just been killed and I was just all over the place, to be honest. And and it was when I was weakest and least able to answer their questions and be a useful Christian as I saw it that God got through to them. And it's so often the case. It is for the church, and it is for us as individuals. God uses us most powerfully when we are weakest. Well, finally, and much more briefly, the Lord, who is sovereign, judges the dead and rewards his people. The last verses are an encouragement to us, because that may not be a message we want to hear, that we will be most useful as we suffer, that we're called to speak and suffer. The seventh angel sounds its trumpet, and now we have final judgment. Um, let's, uh, let's jump in at the um, second half of verse 15. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. It's a glorious change from chapter 4, verse 8. God is now the one who is and who was. He's no longer described as the one who is to come, because he has now come. And he is now reigning. 
Verse 18, the nations were angry and your wrath has come, Psalm 2. The time has come for judging the dead and for awarding your servants the prophets and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. The time has come for evil to be judged, and now God rewards his servants. And don't you love the the end of verse 18? He rewards his servants, both great and small. It's not only Billy Graham who'll be commended, well done, good and faithful servant on that last day. God will reward the very least of us for our faltering efforts to bring the life and forgiveness of Christ and, and present it to others. He sees what no one else sees. He hears. So don't give up. Keep speaking even through the suffering. For God sees and he will reward. Now, Revelation 10 to 11 is a glorious vision, but it isn't one that pulls its punches. John warns us, we are in a war. If you follow Jesus, your life is a battle, not fought with physical weapons, but your life is a battle, and all around you, people are dying and facing eternal judgment. Our enemy, the devil, fights dirty, and he loves your suffering. But our God is greater than our enemy. And his victory is ultimate and eternal and his reward is everlasting. And look, the truth is, many of us just need to wake up. It's time to... The trumpets blasted last week and we need to wake up. We need to rouse ourselves. We self and we spiritually sleepwalk through life. But we are the witnesses of God. We are the mouthpieces for the gospel. There's no one else. It's God's church who will bring the news of Jesus Christ to the world that is dying in sin and needs that hope. Question is, who will you tell this week? Who are you praying for this week? It won't be easy. There's a, there's a great line halfway through John Bunyan's work, Pilgrim's Progress, where the pilgrim is faced with the choice between the easy road or the hill called difficulty of obedience to God and witness to Christ. And he says these wonderful words. This hill, though high, I covet to ascend. The difficulty will not me offend, for I perceive the way to life lies here. Come, pluck up heart. Let's neither faint nor fear. Better, though difficult, the right way to go than wrong, though easy, where the end is woe. And it's not just our woe. It's the woe of those around us who we do not warn. Our calling is to be faithful witnesses. These chapters make that so clear. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to be a faithful witness. We are to speak of Jesus and we are to suffer for him. And we are to do so tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow until he returns. Let's pray. For it has been granted you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Our Father God, we, we thank you for the glorious vision of Revelation 10 to 11. We thank you that as we feel weak and inadequate to the task of speaking of Christ, 
We wonder who we could convince of anything. We thank you that your spirit is with us. It is not by our might, but by your spirit's power. As we fear suffering and rejection, we thank you that your resurrection life comes through your church. And our Father, we pray that we would love our friends, our colleagues, our neighbors enough to speak of Christ. Pray that we would not flinch from the hardships and sufferings, but that as we follow a crucified Savior, so we would rejoice to know that just as surely as he died and rose again, so we too, as we suffer for him, will know that one day we will rise, one day we will reign, and one day you will reward. Amen.